1: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 7 of the Eggshells Podcast Companion. This is an audible companion to Eggshells Pro Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome, a, a book that talks all about the history of wrestling shows within Japan's most famous arena. My name is Chris Charlton and on this podcast we have a different guest every episode to talk about a year in Tokyo Dome history. This year, this episode even, it's 1995 and my guest from post-wrestling, it's waiting. Hello. Hello, Chris. Wow. This is our first time doing a show together, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's only like our... Second time properly talking together, pretty much, yeah, pretty much, yeah, because yeah, like there's yeah. a couple of times when I've called into the law and you've been on there. Um, oh, like you think? Oh, like I was, I was call screen. Yeah, yeah, it, so. yeah, it was call screen, and then you were like, "Okay, who's this?" And it's Chris, and it's like, "Wait, are you that Chris?" He was like, "Yeah." <laughs> um,
0: wow! Wow! Yes! 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 Yeah. So our third time, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: um, 1995 way what was your relationship to to wrestling uh in in 1995 and did you have any relationship to japanese wrestling in 1995? Oh. uh so i was uh 10 years old uh at
0: this time turning uh, 11 and my relationship was uh i was a kid um watching wwf uh a, Parts of WCW on our uh, TBS um, that we get on cable here. And I believe at this time I was probably watching some of the worst uh, professional wrestling that the company's ever made as uh, Lawrence Taylor and Bam Bam Bigelow geared up for WrestleMania 11's main event.
1: Okay. Did you? I mean, I assume if you had any relationship to Japan at that point, if you were watching WCW, it might be uh, like the occasional Liger. Uh, match here or or there? Did did any of that ever make an impression of, like, here is this uh, colorful Japanese dude in a costume? Honestly,
0: probably not. I don't even think I was really aware of Japanese wrestling at the time. Uh, Honestly, for me, like my relationship with Japanese wrestling didn't really come about until uh, I had sort of uh, my dark period from professional wrestling probably, like, at the start of the Attitude era. Like, I was, like, the total opposite of most people, where a lot of people jumped in at the Attitude era. Well, I kind of got out at the Attitude Era, uh, but it wasn't until my my second, I guess, reawakening to professional wrestling where I started to discover a lot of news groups and things like that, and that came about in the year about 2000, and that's when I went back and I think uh, dug up a lot of like um, you know classic Japanese wrestling matches that I've I've seen or, or I heard people talk about. Um, and uh among them of course you know uh much of uh, what was going on in new japan at this time with uh, the super j cup and uh names like lager and you know uh whatnot so yeah
1: we uh I tend to have a look um at this you know in this podcast we we have a look at what's going on in pop culture and what's going on in the news in japan around this time and uh i've got to tell you even for me 1995 doesn't resonate in terms of cultural output. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, the biggest thing I could find, uh, the 1995 top single was, uh, dreams come true and love, 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 which is a song I've Wh- never What is that? I don't know. By who? Uh, but through the magic of audio technology, I, our listeners already know this. So I'm dropping the clip.
0: So are we talking now.
1: America or like, oh, excuse me. Sorry. Are we talking, um, that's, that's USA like to right to your question? Yeah. Uh, no, this was, uh, the, the top Japanese single was, uh, oh, was okay. country. <laughs> gotcha. That. But, uh, yeah, this was like 95 to me was probably around when I became aware of like Japan, Japan as a place. I mm-hmm. guess, you know, as being, I'm about the same age as you, so I would have been 11. And, um, I remembered like talking about Japan in school because, like, it was just the run of awful news coming out of Japan because, like, just, we're going to talk about, um, NJPW Battle 7, which was the the first, uh, Tokyo Dome show of the year. And that was January 4th. Right after that was the great Hanshin earthquake, the, the sort of famous. Um, hmm. huge earthquake that, that hit what around Kobe. Um, then that was January. And then in March was, uh, I don't know if you remember, there was like the, the terrorist attack on the subway with like the Alm Shinranco cult, um, like dropping sarin on, on a subway train um which was uh you know the the biggest sort of terror incident in in japanese history so it was like all this weird sort of scary news coming out of, of japan at, at the time which uh on on some level sort of resonated with me for, for ages that's, that's what i think about with 1995 and and japan now so not not a great year in, in the in the early months at least mm-hmm wow yeah uh i i I I
0: guess a a lot of that didn't necessarily make it my way, but um, that's uh, that's kind of (laughs) shitty for
1: ninety-five. Yeah. Um, anyway, nine ninety five uh, did open up with, with battle seven. And what we do, uh, right here on this podcast is we, we usually rather than, than talk about the entire show, because that, that's the the job of the book, which is, uh, by the time most people listen to this, it's available on Amazon, wherever books are sold, uh, right now. Um, but instead we, we talk about individuals or individual matches, that take an interest and uh, to throw it to uh, to away since since you're the guest here. Um, the first match, we you know we were emailing back and forth. You, you chose a, a junior heavyweight clash uh, for your pick of, of battle seven. Yeah, certainly. I mean, looking through this card,
0: uh, I think you know there are a lot a lot of really pretty good choices here. But I think I went with this one because uh, you know Shinjiro Otani is uh, I think a name that. Uh, if you're a follower of this period of time, I think uh, everybody thinks back very fondly on. And it's rare that I get to rewatch a match of his for uh, any of the podcasts that John and I do. So I was uh, quite looking forward to this.
1: Yeah, and his opponent, El Samurai, um, you know, the the two of those sort of the two of those people really gelled throughout. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're sort of best the Super Dunias. uh matches is, is what people remember very often um el samurai led famously uh a guy that that didn't prepare for his his matches uh particularly um at all whether mentally or physically smokes uh (laughs) smokes still does smoke but like smoked uh like a chimney um and uh famously didn't didn't really train did run a lot um was was what I read uh from hmm. reading Jushin Liger's uh autobiography but that that was sort of offset by just constant chain-smoking in the in the back before his matches and uh sort of literally stubbing a cigarette out and going right yeah. let's go <laughs> you know well and, what does uh, that say about about what we know about smoking when you know a guy can wrestle like this despite despite that well i i would i would say that he's an exception of the, the rule oh my goodness um like but, maybe it's, it's helped him. <laughs> yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. This was for the UWA world weight, world. I can't even say it. World Welterweight championship. Um, which is a, a belt that probably not many people, uh, remember in particular, but this, this got to be one of the, the titles that were in the J crown, so you're just getting up to the point where they um, implement the J crown, which was what, eight different titles, you know, the, the famous sort of pictures of ultimate dragon being mm-hmm. uh, weighed down by a ridiculous um, amount of, of gold. And we're in this weird sort of phase way where like, of course, like you were saying that the super, the super J cups being, very famous and and you know liger had uh, helped new japan to host the first one in 1994 and then uh, you know later uh, war would uh, would host Nat- uh, 1995's version of that um but yeah so very big time for junior heavyweight championship junior heavyweight wrestling and, and a big time for liger but liger was out this first part of the year with with an ankle injury so that sort of uh led sort of Otani and, and Samurai and then like immediately after that you had uh noya Hanaga and, and Great Sasuke uh wrestling for the IWGP belt. So it sort of said how deep the card is because you don't even today you you and we've got a really deep junior heavyweight uh division today in, in New Japan, but really you would you would only see one uh junior heavyweight match on a card nowadays. Mm-hmm. But here it's like two title matches opening up January the fourth, you know. Certainly. What was the UWA? It was a Mexican promotion. Mm-hmm. Um I don't want to that, put you on the spot i'm sorry Yeah, yeah. no you are, but like this was uh, I it, it would have been like Ultimo Dragon would have been like the the big link of UWA to um to Japan. Mm-hmm. Um and so they they had these deals and and that would have been how um Ultimate Dragon would have been called in for, uh, for those, uh, SWS shows. And then from there, from SWS to WAR, and then because war still had this, uh, working relationship with, with new Japan, then that's how, you know, that's the in of, of Ultima Dragon into new Japan as well. Right. Um, so then, that's how the, the belt came into to this mix. Yeah, yeah, and the mm. UWA at this point was really on its way out, and it's it started up in in 1975, had a, a 20 year run, and and uh, it went out of business later on in 1995, and so that that was an easy way of, of folding that belt into into the J-Cram. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, what's surprising as well is like you, for me at least, like you you had this this junior heavyweight opener. Uh, to a big Tokyo Dome show, and it's it's jarring because I think like nowadays it's junior heavyweight opener to a big show, and you expect like dive, dive, dive in a very high pace, mm-hmm. um, and this isn't that right.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not at all. I I would say this was more of a technical encounter, um, and. I mean, especially a guy like Otani, who is just incredibly technical, but also of the mold that uh, somebody who's not only great at at his moves, but is incredibly aggressive in all of his movements. The guy puts a lot of fire and energy into pretty much everything he does in the same mold as, you know, guys like a Chris Benoit. So um, doesn't really need all the dives.
1: Yeah, right. And you know when there there is like you know that's sort of where the pace quickens, where there, there is just like this this samurai, um, El Samurai does a okay, tope, and then like after that, um, things sort of pick up towards the the finish. It's it's a really sort of uh compelling match, and and like you say, the sort of very Otani, um you know, very indicative of, of Otani's style. Um, and you kind of, I always have an image of, of Otani as like, even when he was young, he, he felt like a, a, a grizzled veteran guy, you know? And it's sure. It's How old weird. would he have been? He would have here? been, God, he would have been mid-20s. I think like, wow. they were, I think it was around... This match here, you know, there, there was this thing of he'd come back from excursion, and then like the announcers are talking about, you know, he wants to win the IWGP I, GP title, he wants to headline a show, and he wants to own his own Mercedes by the time he's like twenty seven or <laughs> something, you know. Well, that's a great goal. Yeah, I hope I hope he accomplished it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um. um anyway. But yeah, I thought I thought I really enjoyed this match. You know, For both men, really clean technique, but especially Otani's added aggression, I thought was really great. Like it, to me, it was almost amazing how well this match still holds up today. Like this felt like a match that to me would would still definitely fit on an ROH or a PWG or even a modern day New Japan show. So it perhaps tells you, you know, the the level of, level of influence guys like uh, these two had on the current generation of wrestlers.
1: Yeah, and and the level of like the the level of influence that the era did you know mm-hmm. i think like you were talking i mean your point of contact with japanese wrestling is, is the same as mine which is your know, ninety four, ninety five 95 super jacob you know mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. that's the same for everyone you know i, I think i've mentioned this on on another episode of the podcast but uh yeah i met kashida a couple of years ago and like it was like oh you know we got to talking about what our sort of first experiences of wrestling was or Japanese wrestling was. And I go, oh, yeah. I mean, I watched the 94 Super J-Cup. That was, like, the first thing for me. And Kishida's like, everybody says that.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, like, I mean, even even to this day where, like, yeah, last week I just went to uh, Ring of Honor's uh, War of the Worlds show here. Sorry, I don't mean to date the show, but anyway. Like, to this day, Liger still gets some of the biggest reactions uh, stateside, you know, of anybody on the current New Japan roster. And I have a feeling that, I mean, it has to be uh, in my opinion, probably some of his matches from that era that a lot of the, a lot of current modern day pro wrestling fans have probably seen in order to garner that type of reaction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: So uh, my pick from this show w- was probably not something that could translate um, into really any other. Oh, I'm time. so glad you chose this. <laughs> and uh, you know, this is why because it it felt so bizarre you know and and what it Mm. set up was so bizarre but like antonio inoki versus sting um this was the start of well not quite the start so like um 1994 after uh inoki was beaten by tenure at the start of 94 we we got into the antonio inoki final countdown um which you know, these, it's, it's the most unique of wrestling retirement, right? That not only, you know, are we going to have a retirement match that we are eventually going to keep to. And, you know, until you pretty much he, he kept to his retirement match, but that he'd have a retirement tour that lasted for four years. <laughs> <laughs> so like, the, the final countdown started in 1994, went all the way up. To April of nineteen ninety eight. Oh my goodness! But you are seeing, awesome. you know, this was yeah. In- Inoki was on a, a limited schedule really since ninety one. You know, he wasn't uh, wrestling um, particularly often. Um, but uh, yeah, th- this was the third. This this was the third <clears throat> official. Final countdown match, but actually the fourth since he said he was going to do the final countdown, um, because he, he wrestled William, William, William Regal, that's two W's and an R's together, uh, very closely, um, in 1994, um, which didn't count because, you know, he was Steve Regal or whatever, you know. Uh, he was just a, a, WCW guy at the time, even though he was, he was somebody that was pushed, you know. Um, but, uh, what did count as final countdown matches was, uh, his match with, uh, Willem Ruska and his match with, uh, with Great Muta as well. Um, and now this, this was the, the next big step, which was a tournament. Oh my God. A martial arts tournament that was part of his retirement match tour that Sting <sighs> managed to make the final of. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: Okay. When I, when I did some, some of my research on this show, I came to realize that um, this was the tournament featuring an infamous match featuring sting versus kickboxer, Tony Palmore. Mm. And I had to drop everything that I was doing in order to watch this one. (laughs) Once I learned that Dave Meltzer rated this match minus four stars. Did you, did you happen to, to catch this one?
1: I did when I was writing the book. I did, but I didn't rewatch it to do the podcast. So well, I, yeah. Let
0: right. me just quickly talk about this. This was like you know basically Steve Borden staying in a kickboxing sparring match, except, I mean against a legit kickboxer, but somebody who was probably out of his you know prime for by seventeen years, wearing like kickboxing gloves. So this whole match is pretty much just a sparring match featuring a kickboxer punching the walking punching bag known as sting <laughs> and uh it you know <laughs> star ratings are very subjective uh this one i i could i could see definitely why dave rated minus four stars it was just it was hardly a match and more of a you know a man walking around doing target practice uh sting winning with the scorpion death lock just kind of out of nowhere
1: yeah yeah um yeah, that, that sort of rings true with, with my memories of it. And then you know, the match with Inoki itself, which feels just really weird. I, I mean, like they, they are clearly on two different pages because Sting is, okay, I'm going to have a wrestling match with Antonio Inoki, you know, and Antonio Inoki is like, I'm going to have a martial arts match
0: hmm. with,
1: uh, with this American guy, you know, that I, it feels really strange of, of, he this, this martial arts tournament and you're getting to the point now where, you know, Inoki is winning most of the matches that he's having with like this, this rear naked choke or whatever. And then here's Sting working on Antonio Inoki's legs for ages. Um, for mm-hmm. ages and ages, like the, the bulk, like 90% of this match. Certainly. Um, yeah, was staying, and that was kind of, I guess, some of the theme behind like these these final countdown matches of like Inoki having less and less in his tank, um, in, in order to to get by, um, right? But yeah, yeah. I
0: I found it really interesting watching this one because I thought it was more of a. It, I got to see a side of thing that I probably didn't get to see all that often. This was a very more of a technical sting than i'm used to seeing you know not a sting with the stinger splashes or or any of the wooings it was just a match design with sting getting the upper hand via technical submission um you know with him doing basically (laughs) all the all the submission moves i've ever seen sting do in you know what figure four leg lock obviously the scorpion death lock uh and then a long stf so I thought Sting actually, you know, it was nice to see him kind of play this type of different style of match. And and Inoki, um, really, we just got to see him sell for basically 10 minutes. And I, I I think the thing that stands out about him is that like he's got this incredibly exp- expressive, almost like cartoon-like face where um, you kind of like – even if you're watching him for the first time, you really automatically identify and know exactly what he's going through because – He's so expressive. Mm. Um, but as a match itself, uh, it was quite anticlimactic, I felt, with the finish. Like, Inoki just kind of was selling the in- entire time, and then all of a sudden, sleeper hold
1: anyone. Yeah. He won. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah I, the most in- interesting part of this match to me was the commentary, because um, doing guest color for, the, for this match was Akira Hokuto, which. Mm-hmm. Um, your know, first, it it probably would have been one of, if not the first times that Akira Hokuto would have met Kensuke Sasaki would have been at this show. Um. Interesting. They, they, yeah, they, they would later. Um, you know, both it would have been Sasaki's second wife and and Hokuto's second husband, and that you know they they get married. I think you know a couple of years after this. So was uh, she doing color for the entire uh, show or just this no, match? Uh, no, not the entire show. Like yeah, oh. the, like one or two of these 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 matches she was she was on. Um, so and, she just happened to watch the main event of this show and was like, wow, I got to get to know that guy. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, but uh, hmm. yeah, I mean the the other thing was how. Much like the, the regular commentary just deified in Oki. Um, and then perhaps mm. the, the Hokuto wasn't so much on that <laughs> page, you know? <laughs> so like she, she's trying to make like an, an analyst's, uh, point that, that's, that's reasonably, um, you know, that, that's not necessarily pro in you know? She, she's saying, well, you know, in, in Oki's, you know, he's having you know, as he's moving on in in his career, he is losing a lot of of muscle mass, and you you see that 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 his arms are looking a little bit wiry, and he he might have a bit of trouble Uh-oh. sort of paring out the submissions with Sting here. Oh no! And, uh, you know, the the announcers just completely sort of no sell her comment whatsoever, and then then it goes, you know, they they then go, ah. Oh, What kind of message will the great Antonio Inoki leave with us tonight? You know,
0: just completely. Oh, she didn't get the memo. Yeah.
1: Damn. uh, Then after that, she says very, very little.
0: (laughs) Wow, that's so interesting. So, yeah. I mean, I'm assuming Inoki probably won all of his uh, final countdown matches over the next four years here
1: uh yeah yeah so i mean he was very selective with his his losses really you know i mean certainly ever but like the the big loss to tenryu you know a, a year before this was sparked the the tour and then after that he didn't lose um he didn't lose at all so um
0: mm. yeah okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> like like fans obviously did they have issue with with this at all probably not right
1: no no i, I don't yeah. think so
0: no, I mean, like because these days I feel like if a Booker were to were to just give himself, uh, you know, the victories uh, for for the next four years as part of his retirement tour, I mean, I wonder if it's if he's beloved, then I guess it's totally fine. But um, I don't know; it does, never comes across that well to me.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, like he was, you know, he was getting these like he was booking himself in in these these big wins as a special attraction. You know, mm-hmm. he he wasn't. On every tour, he'd show up very, very rarely. And then not in the, you know, he'd be put in the main event above the IWGP title, but he wasn't wrestling for the IWGP title, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, it was, I think for the, the fans, the sort of hardcore, I guess, you know, if you want to call them smart fans, you know, they would still be happy with the rest of the content kind of thing. And then, oh, here's an oki for, you know, the, the big appearance every now and then. Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't as invasive as all of that. And I think there was like this feeling when Inoki did retire, you know, to most fans, like he'd already retired like about three or four times, you know, because, um, you know, really the, the sort of Antonio Inoki era, uh, so to speak, starts to end like around 1983, 1984 as an active wrestler. So he did that, uh, you know, the famous match with um, Hulk Hogan, where he gets he gets knocked off the apron with uh, with the Axe Bomber, and then you know, they they do this big thing that that his his out, and they stretcher him out or whatever. And and a lot of people sort of mark that as the start of Antonio Inoki phasing out from as as a consistent main eventer which was a process that lasted 14 years Mm. um and then you know actually retiring took four it's it's just a very very slow um fade away from from the limelight um so yeah let's uh let's transition out of um out of battle 7 and then from january we fast forward to april and a hugely strange, peculiar event, um, that's something you would never ever see, uh, nowadays. And really, uh, you know, certainly never see it in the West. Could you imagine? where mm. I, I think like the closest approximation would be if there was a super show, um, in 1995 with WWF, WCW, ECW, every single other like, you know, NWA offshoot or every single other promotion that was running in America of, of any note whatsoever, your Smoky Mountains and everybody like that. Um, and it was all hosted by Bill Apter. Like that's (laughs) like the closest approximation I could give to you for this, uh, for, uh, what was called the, the bridge of dream show, uh, which was run by, by weekly pro wrestling did did, Mm -hmm. did that Did just like the, the, Peculiar, peculiarity of this show, was that something that, that stood out to you here? Completely, absolutely.
0: I'm just looking at this card and just the concept of this card, but like the amount of variance you have in the style of matches uh, from every, I guess, major player in, in the on the scene at the time. I just, I mean, in the West, I don't think this would ever happen. Like the idea that, uh, for instance, you know, in modern day WWE, like being on the same show as say, you know, Shakara, like the weirdness of the shikara would <laughs> yeah, be yeah, completely yeah. weird you know all right like it would never happen simply so uh this to me was maybe one of the most fascinating matches i i thought you know i've i probably ever heard about
1: yeah or and this cards. that's not an exaggeration like it's it, it, yeah the the uh, WWE and, and shikara like is probably, you know, there's there's less of a gap there than between New Japan or uh, UWFI and Go Gundam. Which, yeah. You know, which was like goes like, uh, vanity promotion. And Udyuma Go was a sort of a, a mid tier wrestler that was doing sort of comedy TV shows uh, in Japan at the time. And he had this, yeah, the, the alien death match with Uchu Imagine Silver X. Um, what? What what is an alien <laughs> death match? Well, consists but, of? The entire joke was that it was basically just a fucking match. Um but it had weird, you know, they, they it had normal wrestling rules, but dressed up really, really stupidly, you know, so one of the rules was like no interplanetary interference. <laughs> um and another match was like if both wrestlers leave the earth's atmosphere they must return to the ring within the count of 20 you know it, it was just like really goofy rules dressing up a basic that's that sounds awesome like on the same show where you got to see Masawa uh
0: you know and or uh you know mr Nuka pro match or a shoot match uh but with like Minoru suzuki on this show like i i i've I find that so interesting. I mean, I wonder how it would have come across live, though. You know, like, did this audience, have, like, do you think this, uh, an audience attending a show like this had the palette for all this different type well, of wrestling?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's something, when we get into our picks, I think, and I think that's something that, that comes through in, in the crowd's reaction. And it was one thing where, you know, I interviewed a, a Japanese journalist about this show because, you know, what struck me was, like, how how did this work out politically you know Mm. um and you know what he told me was that it was it was more a case of of working with with weekly pro wrestling because like they had such a high circulation um in Japan they were doing ridiculous numbers um you know it it just it was win-win-win all around to cooperate with them you know you didn't necessarily want to pick a fight with, with Pro for, for no reason. Um, mm. and at the same time for a lot of these smaller promotions, um, it was their, their biggest exposure, you know, on, on, a on a grand scale, you know? Mm-hmm. And so your, your point about Minoru Suzuki, like that, um, Pancrase match with, uh, Minoru Suzuki against Kristo Weaver was immediately after, uh, the IWA Japan death match. <laughs> um, yes. And there uh, there was a fair, I think, uh, Mick Foley talks about it in his, in his book where they had like the, the gimmick was they had to get to a barboy bat that was sitting in the middle of the ring, right? To, to start. Um, and so they lined everybody up on the stage and it was supposed to be a, a, a mad dash to the ring to grab this bat and use it. Um, and Mick Foley, you know, he didn't hear the ring announcer or whatever. So he gets off to a flying start before everybody else, you know, before they say go. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, the, the, the weekly pro write-up of that match was, was talking about how Mick Foley basically ruined this, 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 uh, this contest that was supposed to be everybody running to the ring. But like Minoru Suzuki's post-match comment was that, uh, yeah, his, his match, or at least he was selling it as a shoot with, with Christopher, but like, yeah. it, you know, you're saying how, how difficult it was to to sort of go to ground with, with him because there was a big pool of blood in the middle of the ring and they were slipping all over it. Um, from, yeah.
0: And this was even before the, or this was either before after the, this was after the aliens too. So yes, I mean, well, imagine all the alien blood that's in there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, but you went, uh, you went Joshi for the, for your mm-hmm. on, on this match.
0: Yeah, again, you know, uh, very rare for, you know, uh, the, the t- types of shows that I get to do where we get to uh, go back to, to watch a lot of Japanese uh, women's wrestling. And for me, I mean, I, I'm almost a, a real novice when it comes to, I think, this uh, era of Japanese wrestling. So uh, I thought this was a great excuse to go back to watch the show. Uh, some of the matches that took place between uh, the women in this eight man tag team match uh were this was uh, one of the highest rated uh, matches on the show along with the uh, all japan match in um in the semi-main so i was very curious to go back to watch this
1: yeah so you just come off like the um the all japan women's uh tokyo dome show back the, you know the prior november which is the sort of the the high point of of the the sort of subgenre i suppose and and after this this is the the start of the a slow decline for for japanese women's wrestling um but you had the two big uh two big like tag matches um you know with uh, all japan women kind of having a, a much more i think a, a much more sort of high paced very sort of spot filled match with um, Toyota and Blizzard Yuki against uh, Inoue and Aji Kong, um, but this like JWP stuff, especially Dynamite Kansai, is just brutal in this mm-hmm. match. Absolutely oh, yeah. brutal. Well, oh, the first thing that you really stands
0: out is just uh, yeah, exactly how incredibly aggressive I think uh, somebody like uh, Dynamite Kansai is. Uh, but also all the screaming, like I don't think I was necessarily mm. prepared for a, like it felt like a tennis match at times with, with like immediately to start with all the screaming and in the incredibly fast pace, of course.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, they, they are. You know, I think like that's something I don't watch a lot of Joshi now, but like I think that's that's part of it that the, the Japanese women's wrestlers are, are much more vocal the Mm -hmm. the men and uh, yeah it's interesting because I was talking to um, Dan and uh, Emily Reed from Pro Wrestling Eve um, like the big UK women's promotion we we talked about we talked to them on the last episode um, and they were talking about whenever they have uh, Japanese girls come over to do uh, seminars at their wrestling schools like one of their things that they they teach people is to be a lot more vocal where like a lot of western uh western wrestlers in general but like especially women's wrestlers like they feel kind of a little bit almost awkward or almost too shy to to really yell in the ring Mm -hmm. but uh yeah yeah very very vocal and like you know it it kind of it makes sense you know i think in in general mm, i don't know would you say like japanese men as well are perhaps more vocal in the ring than than western wrestlers um
0: it's not honestly anything i'd notice so uh i you know so i i, I personally wouldn't really say so but i i feel like um mm, it, it's it seems more important in in japan to you know show i think uh what they call fire and like and, and yeah. will when you're wrestling and i can understand why it might be more important for uh, a woman's match to appear that way because uh Maybe, you know, uh, it's, it's, you, you, these, these women are very physical with their style, but I suppose to even accentuate that, um, the, yeah, screaming and shouting as you're delivering these, these very heavy, you know, punches and, and chops and whatnot, uh, adds to it, adds to the aesthetic.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, as you say, they they are like hugely aggressive and and physical, and perhaps they have to be more so than mm-hmm. the, the men. And at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, I mean, obviously, you're looking at smaller, for the most part, uh, sort of smaller frames running at each other here. So like that adds an aspect to it. But there, I think there is in Japanese wrestling, like the the kind of the. You know, the the anime protagonist and antagonist yelling at each other from from a mountain top kind right. of thing, you know. And you you do get now, you know. I mean, Tanahashi would like yell out, Okada you know. Mm-hmm, it's not, like, mm-hmm. it's not. Like you're, you're never gonna get like I don't know, whoever it is, like Seth Rollins going like Roman, <laughs> you know. As, as he, some it's
0: of them like, do that yeah. now, but like, yeah, it's not really. They they just do it because they they probably love Japanese wrestling. That's all.
1: Right. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, yeah, what do you think of the match itself? Yeah, it's a, like very, very, just hugely physical. And um, yeah, you I know, mean, I I haven't seen perhaps as much um, you know women's wrestling of, of that era as, as I'd like. Um, but still, yeah, I mean, Dynamite can say uh, really leapt out of the uh, the the Big Egg uh, Universe show in in November as well. And uh, yeah, with with a few minutes here um she just she she just really leaps out as being just oh incredibly mm-hmm. incredibly
0: snug well um, for most of the most of these women would it have been their first time wrestling at the tokyo dome
1: yeah so i mean like jwp had a presence um back in november as well um but yeah i, I think like there probably was a sense of you know look how uh, you know look at what stage we've reached and probably for a lot of these girls, like an awareness of this isn't going to be around for very much longer. Mm. Um, you know, and yeah, it, I, I suppose, yeah, a, a very strange sense. I think that, that, you know, that, that it exploded and then was gone. Uh, right. Right, a specific, right. You know, a very, very short period of time. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'll say, uh, you know, me watching this match as a novice, I actually found it almost a little bit difficult to really identify who, who was belonging to which team because it's it's not only eight women in this tag team match. It's also Lucha Rules, so no tags. People mm. are moving in and out so fast and the action is so fast that I just – I found myself like really um, – it, it, not 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 necessarily kind of being able to to care about so much who was winning or who was losing mm. because I couldn't even tell who was on which team instead mm. it just kind of like it felt like a big mashup of moves to me and that's mm. awesome too right like if you're just down to watch uh you know wonderful execution and very fast paced especially with women working this type of style uh but I think I don't think it probably resonated to me as much as maybe it would have to somebody else who was more familiar with the stories and the participants here.
1: Yeah. And I think as well, that spoke to the nature of the show, you know, and like every mm-hmm. of these promotions had one match. Um, so their sort of logic was especially lower down the card was, okay, we've got to have a demonstration match and, and show what, you know, get as many of our people to do as much as they can, um, and try and, and, you know, the, it was a promotional opportunity for, for them uh with everybody trying to steal the show yeah exactly exactly yeah. and then you know that sort of segues into my pick which sort of tried to grab interest in it in a very different way and uh, i chose the fmw match from this show uh a no ropes exploding barbed wire death match between the great nita and pogo dio um you know great pogo dio being uh the the famous mr pogo who who sadly left us uh last year And uh, Great Nita being the Great Muto-inspired alter ego of Atsushi Onita. Um, And if you weren't sure, if you you didn't think, oh, who is this mysterious Great Nita? Um, They played, you know, his his entrance music was Atsushi Onita's entrance music of Wild Thing, but played on like koto harps and like traditional Japanese instruments. Oh, okay. That's
0: what that was. Yeah. (laughs) It was so, wow. Very interesting. Why, why did they have their alter egos for this one? Do you know?
1: Um, God, I, mm, I think probably I'd leave that to the book. I'd have to look for, for right, where right, I wrote right. about it. But like, I mean, this was, yeah. I mean, Pogo and Onito were tied together for, for ages and ages. Um, and uh, yeah, then, you know, I mean, it probably became a thing. Great Muto being, being big at the time or whatever of, uh, let's rope in our, our, alter egos to this one and a very different, um, a very different feel to the match because like this was in a second ring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they did this partly because the, the just practicality because, yeah. you know, going on as late as they can, they, they would have to change out all the ropes, you know, rig up all of these explosives and what have you. Um, and that would just make the show, you know, even longer than, than it was.
0: Um, do, you, do you think it said something about maybe the popularity of FMW, the, the fact that they basically went third from the, the, the end of the card, uh, you know, just before the All Japan and New Japan uh, matches?
1: It spoke to, uh, I think, how shady uh, Weekly Pro Wrestling was at the time, oh. and uh, how shady the, the editor, specifically the, the editor at the time, is a sort of famous um, wrestling journalist called uh, Tarzan Yamamoto. Um, and he was, uh, close, uh, I'll say with Atsushi Anita is, is, uh, a, a political way of putting it. Um, mm. but the actual way of putting it was Anita was giving a lot of money to ship at the time, uh, especially when FMW was, was getting off the ground, he would, he would pay for like front, you know, front cover exclusives or whatever. And, and like main, uh, sort of big show coverage. Uh, within the magazine, even when the shows weren't that big. Um, so that was something I that was see. still persisting into 1995 of like FMW being given a bigger shot, a bigger spot on the card than perhaps they would, they would deserve. Um, mm. you know, and obviously New Japan had the main event spot, even though New Japan didn't have a great relationship with Super at the time. Um, but you would imagine that, Knowing what New Japan would have wanted to do later on in the year, um, that they would have been lobbying for UWFI to have a higher spot on the card than what they actually got, which was fourth from the top. Hmm. Um, but yeah, just a, a strange, one of the strangest things was like having this, this second ring, which probably nobody could have seen that well. You know, I mean, the, the bulk of like the, the Tokyo Dome would have had to really squint to see this this second ring, which was right by the stage. And um, looking at the the photos at the time, everybody that was sitting in that part of the, the building, not only would they, you, you would need opera glasses or binoculars to see the main ring, but they were also like sat behind the big screen so they couldn't mm-hmm. see any of the rest of the show,
0: you know? Oh no.
1: Um, and that kind of spoke to... You know Anita's sort of philosophy, and philosophy like even now, you know, one of the interviews I think he gave was like he he would rather play to like five thousand people um, in one part of the 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 Tokyo Dome and have the kind of match that he wanted to have, than do something generic in front of like forty thousand in the middle. Mm. Um, Interesting. uh, yeah but nevertheless I'm I'm not actually a fan of this match. Um, me- I think it kind of sucks.
0: No me neither. Like I I mean I'm not a huge fan of I think death matches in general but um I mean, I can understand the appeal of, of this type of match, you know, like the, the gross up factor, I think garnered uh, a lot of big reactions. Um, you know, it's just the kind of the nature of, 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 of the, the idea. But um, and there and, you know, like tense moments are, are, I think, like very easily created, especially here when, you know, they're trying to shove each other into the um, uh, barbed wire exploding no rope barbed wire deal. Um, but. I mean when they brought out like the sickle <laughs> and then like a barbed wire bat and it was just like moments of just like you know digging a a blunt object <laughs> into a, a man's uh open wounded back I mean yeah. I just to me I didn't care so much for it like I I've, it's it's a type of match that I feel like anybody can do even though that's probably very far from the truth yes I I understand mm. but it's just not really my thing
1: he did, I mean, need to, like, uh, sorry, Pogo did actually, he built to it a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. and I was watching, I was taking notes at the time. So, like, you know, I kind of think whenever something this lists- as goofy as a sickle comes out, you know, I have visions of like Tiger G sing like with his big mm-hmm. sword and then he just hits people with a hammer with a handle of it, you know? And, uh, so he, he sort of slices up and he's his shirt first and I'm, I'm taking notes and I'm going, yep. And so like Poker's going to do everything with the sickle except stab someone with it. Oh, he stabbed him with it. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yes, he did. But, uh, it's kind of like the thing is though, there's the drama leading up to the first, explosion into the ropes and then like after that you know it's kind of like ski jumping right like the first time is exciting Mm -hmm. and then the second one goes and the third one goes and by like the end of like the the 10th jump you you're turning the winter olympics off and like that that's that for me uh this match Mm -hmm. especially the finish where it's just like they they both fall into it together and then like Anita just sort of lands on top and that's it yeah. yeah,
0: I mean, I part of me wishes this was maybe a better example of you know the this style because I feel like uh, there's so many fans of this type of wrestling and I it's never really kind of jumped out at me. Um, so I was hoping maybe this one would have been an example where you know I totally oh I get it I get why you know people love this stuff but this wasn't it to me.
1: Yeah, and uh, sort of after this match as well, like Anita stays in the ring for like 15 minutes. Or something like they play his music through like, yeah, through times. You know? I was surprised that this was even kept on the video dub that we saw on YouTube here. Like, yeah. we wouldn't just cut this off. But yeah, the right. fact that he stayed out there for this long was, I wonder why. And, uh, you know, to speak to your point from earlier on, like the, the main bulk of the crowd at, at the end of this, you just start to hear it at the end of the, the, the video that's on YouTube. Um, but, and you definitely hear it if you watch the, the all Japan match, um, -hmm. they, they start really heavily booing this. But oh yeah. really? Um, I missed that. And they know, and you know, they know that the the next match is is the All Japan match, and like there's this chart of like Zen Nihon, Zen Nihon, starting. Mm-hmm. Up his, like if people wanted to watch the All Japan match, they they don't really give a shit about. <laughs> oh no. Um, yeah, Anita in the middle of the ring, but uh, yeah, a, a very strange, very strange match, very strange show, and headlined as well by like Hashimoto and Chono in not a good match. Mm, um, right yeah you know, it's pretty like the the old japan tag is is awesome um and then new japan has this this sort of stalling sludgy main event where probably deliberate to an extent you know is like why should we really yeah you know, we're already with with the top promotion like we don't need to sort of advertise ourselves as much as the other promotions do um and they sort of i guess you know it's it's kind of like w it
0: you know like in this, this oh movie. yeah. But I mean, in hindsight, I I feel like, you know, the the other side of the coin is that you are on the show with so many other promotions, everybody's putting their best foot forward. Mm. And in comparison, you being put in the main event spot and, you know, not living up to the standard of the rest of the show. Really just is terrible advertising for you.
1: Yeah. And like, um, Hashimoto, like, actually kind of was pretty brutal in his post-match interview as well. You know, he was saying like, yeah, all these other promotions have have really stepped up. And, you know, he said, I don't think this, this match was anything to be proud of. (laughs) Oh, good for him. That's great. Yeah. Um, at least he's honest. Yeah, and, uh, D- weekly pro wrestling at the time was, was perhaps a bit too honest when they were talking about, uh, New Japan shows, um, mm. around this time. And they, they had a very sort of frosty relationship. And then uh, eventually, um, New Japan would boycott, uh, weekly pro wrestling from like early 96 or so, um, for like a, a few month period. Um, so, mm. Like, odd politics going on, and like, odd politics was what, uh, led us to our last show that we're gonna look at on this episode, which was, uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling versus UWFI, the, the all-out war, uh, from October 1995. Uh, the start of a very, very, very famous, um, well, not the start, it's like the third show in it, but very, very famous, uh, inter-promotional, uh, feud, really because I think that, you know, Western, wrestling historians say that oh this was the the jumping off point for the nwo which how much of that is is entirely there and how much of it is exaggerated i don't know um Hmm. but uh yeah i mean what your thoughts weigh on on new japan versus uwfi
0: well, this was uh, honestly the original reason why I chose this year was because it featured this show, and uh, like with me and UWFI, I was originally exposed to to it through um, our uh, sports channel here, TSN. They aired their series of Bushido shows in the early 2000s or late 90s so uh in the fight network where i used to work uh would would go on to air this series as well and i always found the style so incredibly interesting because it was so different from any of the wrestling that i had seen up until that point uh just you know uh, the, a combination of just real and fake and, and to the point that you know before mma got really popular it really made you ask was this real because it it seems so minimalistic and so different from wwf or wcw at the time so i was always interested in seeing this feud but i've never really seen anything from it so uh honestly i don't know a whole lot other than that uh on this show i knew that new japan basically mm, beat the shit out of uh, the uwfi dudes
1: yeah that was sort of um really ricky choshu's uh sort of method at the time, and his approach to to anything that was working with another promotion was uh, basically to, to. It wasn't so much that we're going to make sure we we steamroll the other guys. I think I think that was an aspect to it. But um, you know, if you look at this this feud at large, it was basically on New Japan shows. New Japan guys are, are pretty much going to dominate. And then on UWF shows it was kind of the other way around. Like New Japan would send reasonably minor guys, some big names, and, and UWF would, would always win those matches. But mm. I mean the, the problem with that is if you have that approach where the home team wins all the time, then you know it's basically the biggest company that's gonna steamroll the smallest one in, in the end of the day. And that <laughs> you know that's what that's what happened. Um, you know, that this was the the fading out process for UWFI uh in general. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, this would have been, uh, perhaps would have been, could have been, um, bigger than it was because, like, this was a feud that was UWFI wanted to do in 1993. Um, and Masa Chono wanted to do in, in 1993, and it got pushed back, uh, to, to 1995, um, in the end. Um, it started when, um, Masahiro Chono was interviewed in a magazine and they asked, like, who would you like to wrestle? Um, you know, out of anybody that's perhaps not in New Japan. And, uh, Chono said, uh, Nobuhiko Takada. Um, and that sparked a couple of UWFI guys, um, to go, Oh, you know, maybe we could actually do this. You know, that could be hmm. something that could, be, that, that could really work, you know. Um, and they went to the New Japan office and the New Japan office in, in general and Rick Joshua in particular were like, no, like very much no, but not in, uh, like out, they, they weren't going to outright say no. So they just put uh, so many ridiculous demands, um, and so many ridiculous stipulations, um, on what was going to happen, uh, that UWFI would, would walk out. Um, like they wanted a ridiculous guarantee. Um, from UWFI, uh, they, they wanted UWFI to, to pay New Japan a ridiculous amount. Um, and then it would be, it was, it was a stupid amount of money for the Takada and Chono match that would happen on a New Japan show. So like New Japan would have gotten all of those tickets and UWFI would have got nothing. Um, and also one tag match, they would have had one tag match to set it up that would have that would have to have had takada but wouldn't have to have had chono so like there would be oh, this this one tag match on a new japan show where either if i had to send their top guy new japan wouldn't have to send chono and then to set up this this tokyo dome match um which would have been january 4th 93 uh that would have been takada versus chono and presumably chono would have had to have won as well um yeah so, what happened yeah. there well, I mean, it was the, the DOWFI guys just walked away from the table. It's like, clearly, you, you don't want us, you know, you might as well have said no. Um, and that's what set up, like, the, the most insane passive aggressive booking, I think, I've, I've ever seen in, in a promotion because, um, DRFI took that money and pulled in Vader. So that's when you, you had Vader have those, those matches with, with Takata in, in 93 and in UWFI instead. Um, and they also, UWFI also very soon after started or, you know, announced a 100 million yen tournament. Um, just to sort of rub it in New Japan's face of, we have this much money. We're just not going to give it to you. Um, <laughs> no. and so they, they announced this big tournament and they threw out, um, just ridiculous invitations, you know. So they they publicly invited Miss um, they publicly invited Hashimoto into this tournament as well to say, "Oh, prove how tough you guys are. We've got all this money. Come on." Um. So yeah, very amusing, passive aggressive per game.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um, how popular would you say like UWFI was at at this time, like in comparison?
1: Uh, I don't know. I th- I think it was. I think probably you're looking at diminishing returns with each uh, iteration of UWF. I, th- mm-hmm. I think, like, when, it, if you look at, like, the the first UWF, it was very, very uh, brief sort of uh, flare-up, and it was something that was very, very different um, and very attractive, and then it died very quickly. Um, so I think then when the second generation of it started, there was a lot of sort of, interest that was held over from that Um, and kind of like you you had new fans but you also had oh this is what might have been sort of five years ago uh, if there wasn't like Satoru Siyama being difficult and there wasn't like Yakuza guys in the back Um, and then you know when the second generation UWF fractured into then you had like uh, you had UWFI and then you also had rings as well um and pwfg which eventually sort of big at pancreas so like it was starting to fracture all of these these different promotions so i think like it was popular and takata was a, a really really big deal um but it, it had a very short shelf life shelf life i think ultimately mm. um and even if they didn't have financial problems i think like when when Pancrase and, and pride really took off then uwfi would have been you know would have been just destroyed anyway
0: Mm-hmm, cer- certainly yeah it, it's tough for me to imagine this type of style working when you had mma really on on the other channel and and yeah. it really exposed i would say this type of wrestling
1: yeah and i think like that's the 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 real fall behind in you know as mm-hmm. we'll get onto in these these later episodes is that the toothpaste was out of the tube at that point you know and and here's like shoot style wrestling trying to, to to cram it back in um but um yeah, what was uh, what match took your fancy on this card?
0: So I chose, I believe, uh uh Yoshihiro Takeyama versus Takashi Izuka, which uh it was really cool to see here, you know, because uh two iterations of, of men that I think we both know uh from other uh points in their careers. Really cool to see a skinny Takayama and such a handsome Izuka who uh is hard to believe is the same man uh that we mm. see today biting body parts uh as part of Suzuki gun.
1: Yeah, yeah. Very, very, very different individual. And uh yeah, lots of sort of fans now don't know you know how how long a career Izuka had. Um long, long, long before he was the, the weird, crazy um guy first as chaos and then as as part of Suzuki Gun. Um, but, uh, yeah, Takeyama would have been what, about 25, 26 at this point, And, uh, that, you know, sort of not far off that. Um, and yeah, I, I imagine like probably for Izuka this would have been kind of a, a, a big, I think probably a big opportunity for him and really, you know, Izuka didn't, Set the world alight. Like, he was always like a sort of up mid card to upper mid card type. Um, eventually he would get, um, you know, some, some big Tokyo Dome spots, like teaming with, uh, Shinya Hashimoto, like when Hashimoto was, was doing his, his rivalry with, uh, Ogawa. Um, but I think like this, this feud in, in general, the UWFI New Japan feud was, um, like real, a real opportunity for a lot of, those mid-card guys in, in New Japan. And this was, like, um, really something for them to to stick their teeth into and be seen as sort of legitimized by getting uh, big big match wins. You know, mm. so this was kind of, I think, probably seen as a big opportunity for going, and, and, and it was also formative for guys like Yuji Nagata as well. And then on the UWFI side, um, you know, a formative period for Takeyama and uh, for guys like Kazushi Sakuraba as well
0: yeah yeah I'll bet. um I really enjoyed the match. I mean, to me, like I wanted to see this type of style of match uh, as a part of this show, and I, I thought this match provided a great sampling of it of of that type of shoot style. What really stood out to me about the match was like I was honestly impressed at the level of grappling here, like the amount of like beautiful transitioning and and uh I think the amount of like crowd response to to the style mm. was quite surprising to me for 1995, like you know the, to me the beauty of like this hybrid shoot style is like the the use of these beautiful transitions using real world submission techniques and combining all of that with the back and forth kind of pacing and theatrics of the storytelling of a pro wrestling match um and listening to this crowd like you can really see mm, like what worked about this style. You can feel this audience focusing on the very aggressive submissions that are taking place. These aren't just rest holds. Like these are aggressive heel hooks and things that can finish matches. And then you hear like sort of their accented, you know, responses whenever a big suplex or a flurry of strikes is introduced. And uh, I thought they did a great job here of telling that type of story.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and yeah, just a really partisan crowd as well you know and and mm-hmm. yeah that they, they, they were really sort of you know these were really new japan fans and, and the, the fans that were cheering for uwfi guys were really uwfi guys you know right yes and uh yeah it, it's something i think i don't know it's, it's hard to say whether oh they hadn't had interpromotional stuff As, as much recently, but because, I mean, they had, because they, they had like New Japan versus, um, Tenryu and, and Ward, like not long before. But I think like it was just presented in, in a different way. And UWFI, you know, I guess like with, with War and New Japan, it was like, here are two broadly similar, Mm similar, like pro wrestling promotions. But like UWFI as well, it was like this thing of here's such a different presentation of pro wrestling, Mm -hmm. um, versus New Japan. Um, so I think like that, that really, really brought it. And, uh, yo, know, it's, it's a shame. I think like the, the closest, um, that I've experienced, you know, in my era, not being around live at the time was, but that very brief flare up with, with New Japan and, and Noah a couple of years ago, um, where you had those, those big, uh, that, that big tag in, in Sumo Hall. And like that was, that suddenly took me aback was like how, hugely partisan the fans were you know i I think like they they really sort of get behind the opportunity to sort of show their colors you know i think um whereas Mm -hmm. certainly like western fans shrug their shoulders on it you know especially in you know in the current Wrestling landscape where it's you know the, a big quote unquote interpromotional feud is is Raw versus SmackDown, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nobody really yeah. buys that
0: one. Um, right. Yeah, it, it's it, it's interesting for me to think about you know how a, a North American modern audience would would probably react to to something like this, uh, a promotion versus promotion. I suppose maybe the closest thing that I can remember was perhaps like the uh, uh, CZW versus ROH feud. And Mm. uh, some of those matches there. Um, But I'm trying to think like today, you know, like I just don't think it would ever happen uh, with the WWE, at least, you know, working with anybody uh, below uh, in, in, you know, in terms of uh, popularity with them. So uh, and yeah, Ross versus SmackDown is pretty much the closest thing you would probably get.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, My pick on this one is a guy, I think. This is probably the last time he'll come up on the on this podcast. Um, but every time he's on a card, like either me or the guest chooses his match. Um and it's always someone where we we talk uh, there's always a phase where we talk about how good Naoki Sano was and how good Naoki Sano is mm. um and and doesn't get as nearly as many plaudits as as he deserves. Um, so we went from, uh, Naoki Sano against Hiro Saito in our, our first episode in 89. Um, and then, uh, back in our 1991 episode, we talked about how good Naokisano versus, uh, Rick Martel was. Um, and that's a match you should, you should check out way if you want to see a different side of the model Rick Martel. Yeah, really interesting. Wow. absolutely awesome in SWS. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, but Sano against Jushin Thunder Liger. Um, just another match of just how passionate the crowd is on this. It's it's deafening to see uh, Sano Liger. They they did have a bit of backstory, I think, to this as well, which was probably something that, that drew the fans in. You know that that Sano was sort of really hit his stride, what stride he had in New Japan uh, after Jushin Liger debuted. So like Sano was Liga's big first big program. Um, you know, when he debuted under the mask. So like through 1989 and into 1990, uh, they had a, they had a few great matches then. Um, and then Sano was sort of lured away to, to SWS and then via SWS to, to UWFI. Um, and now finally, you know, he was this, they're, they're facing each other again on different sides of the promotional fence. And that just like added sort of an extra layer of, of spice to this one.
0: Certainly. Yeah, this 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 felt like kind of the rekindling of a long-time rivalry that this audience certainly recognized.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And um yeah, I mean they they'd been together really since they they were in the dojo because uh yeah, they they both entered the the dojo in 83. They both mm. debuted in 1984. Um but uh yeah, I mean just it, it's it's hard to sort of it's a, it's a brief match. Um and like nothing that, that's super hectic or, or, you know, incredibly amazing in, in terms of just literally what they're doing, but like the anticipation behind everything, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and you know, Sano goes out to the floor early on and the crowd just like absolutely on their feet, you know, sort of expecting Liger to a big dive and, and Sano just, uh, you know, teases Sano gets, gets back into the wing and, and uh, goes to ground. Uh, it was it, a- yeah, that was great, and I also loved like
0: when the uh, when when Sano <clears throat> excuse me finally retreated to the floor, and then uh Liger comes over with a, a some type of dive to the floor. Sano basically was baiting him, gets out of the way, and Sano delivers his own suicide dive. Mm. I thought like the pacing of all that was tremendous. Like it came right after I think all the ground stuff, and this crowd just like leapt up for it. Sano looked. Amazing here, and and like you said, like he's somebody who I never hear people talk about. In hindsight, at least as it relates to you know more of the no, no, notable names to come out of Japanese wrestling, and I really wonder why. Why do you think that
1: is? Um, I think maybe he just sort of made the 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 wrong decisions. Ultimately, you know, perhaps if if he had sort of stayed true to New Japan, maybe he he would have had a decent run in that sort of early junior heavyweight phase. Um, but I don't know. Perhaps he sort of, I think he sort of wound up getting into UWFI through SWS rather than UWF. So maybe I'm talking out of turn, but like because he was sort of bought out by Megan A. Super and then like he was in SWS and, and got in that way rather than being someone that was in the UWF dojo. And part of that promotion, and then transitioned hmm. over. You know, maybe they kind of thought, oh, he's not really our guy and he's not really their guy, kind of thing. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I don't it's know.
0: really like, too it. bad because, like, mm-hmm. in terms of talent, to me, like watching something like this, he looked every bit, you know, top level in terms of just ability. Oh, yeah. um, And Liger, I mean, not much more, you know, not much. I'm not sure how much more there is to say about him, like just a man who excels, seems to excel in all aspects of professional wrestling, whether it be on the ground, high flying and especially putting it all together with like uh, just fun, like great flurries, great signature moves. And just, I think, to me, one of the most fun to watch uh, of all time.
1: Yeah, and like a little like twists to his signature stuff. You know, I think he has a a pile driver through in this match that that the announcers just get caught up in and and call a liger bomb. You know, like mm-hmm. you know he's he's doing his signature stuff and then he's he's putting an extra sort of uh, element of of danger to it or the element of strength to it because of the the significance of this match or whatever. Um, yeah, so. It's, uh, uh,
0: yeah, I would say this one was probably, you know, more of your traditional uh you know, New Japan uh pro wrestling junior heavyweight style match. Not really a UWF shoot style match at all. But, you know, still, boy was it awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, like I said, this this was something that um, you know, allegedly fuels NWO. And, uh, and WCW. And I say allegedly, I don't know what, what your, your take is quite so much. Cause I know, like, Eric Bischoff has, has, said what he said. And like, you know, he was, uh, in the crowd, not this show It would have been the 96, um, January 4th show, uh, that he would have been at. But, um, you know, at the same time, like, I almost see more of what NWA became in Masahiro Chono at the time. And like, I almost kind of think whether that was more what Eric Bischoff took home with him from Hmm. like the Tokyo Dome in 1996, like that aspect of like a, uh, you know, a guy like, like Tetsuya Naito is now. And like his uh, notable absence on this uh, UWFI card, because it was, you know, this, this thing that was promoted as UWFI versus New Japan. And, um, and Chono was like advertised for this card. Uh, I think the UWFI guy, the UWF guy pulled out for some reason. Again, this is something that's, that's in the book and I'm just going off uh, the top of my head right now. But, um, Chono, you know, in storyline wouldn't accept a replacement. And, um, you know, he was saying, you know, I don't have any, any hand in New Japan versus UWFI because I'm my own guy, you know, and, and, he was, this was the transition, um, you know, just after like Chono and and out from being like the generic colorful tight guy into like the the leather clad like cool heel Masahiro mm. Chono, and right. um, yeah, you know, I see like tons more of Masahiro and like Okami Gundan in NWO than I see U- UWF in in NWO, and that's always mm-hmm. something that that struck struck me as odd, you know. Right,
0: right, right. Yeah. I can't really comment too much on it without having seen, you know, sort of the original angle uh, that took place here between. Uh, but how I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of curious, how did the angle get introduced? Like, was there a scene where, you know, equivalent to Scott Hall appearing on the Nitro and uh, threatening, you know, to, to bring in uh, the big guy next week on Monday?
1: Um, it was kind of they, they did a, a tag match in September of that year. Um, so this was like one month, um, one month beforehand. And, and like, it was kind of a, a sort of, in, it was just like an invitational thing at, at Yokama arena. Um, and it was, God, it would have been Nakano and Anjo against, uh, Yuji Nagata, um, and Choshu. So like they you know, Rikichoshu is sort of having his hand right at the start. Um, and that sort of. It was, yeah, much like much the same. I think if you saw that that Noah versus New Japan tag uh, fairly recently in in New Japan from a couple of years ago, uh, like the reaction to that, where they, they they sort of really thought, okay, we've we've really got um, something going here. And one of the things that that's remarkable is, you know, here is uh, a a Tokyo um, First of all, like a legit sellout, and like you can definitely hear that on the crowd, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, they they were they sold the building out. They, they were filling even outside the building, you know, they, there's like a great documentary on, on YouTube, um, where they, they were talking about the show and like, you know, there's footage of, of fans sort of standing out the gate, like squinting at a monitor, you know, from, from outside, you know, cause this was a long, long time before New Japan worlds were streaming everything. You know? Wow. Interesting. Um, and yeah, Is- this was, um, this was on a Monday night. As well, like this was just on a Monday Crazy. night, and you know, next day everybody had work, you know, and that's part of the reason why this was only what a eight eight match show with seven singles matches and none of them going very long, you know, because this this show started at six thirty and it was done by you know before ten, um, it was just like a Monday night <laughs> Monday night show, and they were able to completely sell out the Tokyo Dome, uh, which just speaks to, to how hot, yeah, you know, how big. Uh, the the brand was for New Japan at the time, and and how hot the feud was. As well. That's amazing. Is is that documentary in English or Japanese? It's in Japanese. Yeah, that oh. uh, it, whether it's so much story, it's it's more of a sort of fluff piece for, for ah. wrestling in general at the time. Um, so yeah, there's there's some some great nineties cheese uh, in that. You know, they also just go to. Uh, yeah, it's a new Japan produced thing. So they also, they, they go to like a, a video game store and they say, look at how much merchandise we're pushing. Here's, um, our Super Nintendo and, and PlayStation video games. Um, hmm. that aren't very good. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's, uh, that's 1995. Uh, a, a huge year in, in Tokyo history. Um, wait, thanks. Thanks for joining me for this one. And, um, coming up on our next episode, we'll be looking at 1996, uh, with Damien Abraham, who's going to come in and, and talk to us, uh, about 96, um, which includes such highlights as, um, well, we have great Muta versus, uh, Jinsei Shinsaki as, as Hakushi. So cool. there's, there's a thing that that's something that would have touched, tapped into you and WWF in, in 1995 would have been Hakushi that's right yes yes yes
0: yes him and uh and yokozuna of course that would be my uh my yeah (laughs) my yeah my my opinion of japanese wrestling at the time yes uh but thank you for having me this was a lot of fun a great excuse to kind of go back and dig into an era that i knew a little bit about but not not nearly enough so uh i I had a lot of fun watching these matches
1: all right thank you and uh yeah until next time take care and uh yeah, look forward to to me and Abraham. Dab De- david De- Abraham? Damien Abraham. Abraham. That's what he called. Abraham. Uh next episode. Goodbye.